Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor. This is a show where I like to talk to comedians to find out what their late night influences were and also to talk about, well, just how they got so funny. Um, well, today on the show, I have a really, really fun guest. She's a improviser. She's a performer. She is a voiceover actress who voiced the character of Val on the Adult Swim series Frisky Dingo, and she currently voices the character of Pam Poovey on the show Archer. She's also a world traveler, and according to her IMDb page, she's an amateur interior decorator. So please welcome to the show, Amber Nash. Amber, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I didn't know if you would think I was creepy for including that interior decorator little tidbit, <laughs> but I was like, not just, at all. <laughs> I was like, I'll just put it in there and let's see what she says. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You know, honestly, the, I've done so many interviews with people that don't know anything and have done no research. So it's a real like breath of fresh air to talk to somebody that actually looked at my IMDb page. So way to go. Well, uh, then a little bit later in the show, we can talk about all your world traveling and interior decorating. Okay, I Great. think that's, that's a good idea. But to start off the show, um, I, I just start by this one question, and then we'll just see where it goes from there. So, growing up, what late night influenced you? Okay, well, I'm thinking about it a little bit, and of course, like when I was a kid, I watched Saturday Night Live. I think all kids. First of all, like when you're too young and you like have to sneak to watch it because you're not supposed to and you're like spending the night at a friend's house. Um, so basically like kind of I'm thinking about like what years I was maybe watching it, like maybe when I was like so, like 10 to like early teens. So like the late 80s, early 90s is when I was like really watching Saturday Night Live. And then um, I remember when I was maybe like in um, and of course, like the reason it influenced me is because it was an incredibly hilarious show. And I was like, that looks like fun. I want to do that. It looks like they're having a really good, good time. Um, and then like David Letterman was, was really big when I was like in, um, in college and high school. And I remember watching a lot of David Letterman and like, I appreciated his, his like snarkiness. He was a real smart ass. And that's what I think I, I really liked about, about his show, which I think I'm kind of smart ass too. Um, and then, th then thinking about like kind of, Less obvious late night, but totally late night stuff like, like the Twilight Zone and like weird shit that you find like that only comes on late at night. Like I, I love horror and I love like weird gore stuff. And another late night thing, but this is totally radio, um, is the uh, show Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Are you familiar with the show? No, what is it? It's the weirdest radio show. I don't, I, it was in syndication for a long time. I don't even know if it still comes on. Probably not. I don't even know if Art is still alive. But it was like a radio show that was late night, and he would just talk to, like, weirdos, basically, that were up super late at night, and there was always crazy stories. And I would remember, like, I waited tables um, when I was in college and in high school, and so I'd be driving home late from a restaurant job, and I'd always tune in to see, like, what bonkers thing they were talking about, like, aliens and like you know just weird all kinds of stuff so you like you liked weird things essentially i do i do i'm a, I, I love weird shit i love like when people do weird things i love when like 
people's brains go haywire. Like I'm just really into like, I studied psychology in college and I'm really into like the dark side of humans and humanity and what goes wrong with people. <laughs> that That's so, okay. You know, I'll be honest with you. I did not expect that answer. <laughs> that is not, <laughs> I did not see that one coming. But the, the one thing that I thought was interesting, cause you went in talking just then, you went from Saturday Night Live, you know, which is obviously a comedy show, to right. David Letterman, obvious comedy show, to the Twilight Zone, <laughs> which is a jump. But so what for you, what interests overlapped the Twilight Zone and Saturday Night Live and David Letterman? I think I think one of the things that like because when I was watching the Twilight Zone, I mean, these were like episodes from the like 60s and 70s. So they were already kind of weird and campy and kitschy. And I've always been drawn to things that are like like I like things that are fake. Like I like like when you go to to Disney and you're waiting in line for a really cool ride and the like they've like really done a good job on the waiting in line experience and you're like you know, walking through this world. Like I like backlots and I like fake stuff and sets. Like I like when stuff is like almost real, but not quite. And I think that that maybe like transfers into like doing theater and like living in this world that's not quite real. So, and so maybe that's where the crossover is. And I think a lot of horror ends up being comedic, whether they want it to or not, especially bad horror because it's campy and it's kitschy. Um, so it kind of skirts that line, you know, does that answer your question? <laughs> no, it does. I, I understand <laughs> that where you're coming from. So for you, when it comes to horror, do you like, like actual scary horror, like paranormal, like act where they try to scare you? Or do you prefer like the campy kind of, Oh, look, it's scary. That type of horror. You know, I like it all. Like I like, I like even like psychological thriller stuff. Like, um, uh, like deadly fatal attraction. Like I like from that all the way to like the campy stuff. Like I just saw it this weekend, which if you haven't seen yet, it's awesome. Um, and it's, it's a little bit like a gross out campy, like they're doing it on purpose, of course. Um, but it's part of what's fun about it, but it, there's also some seriously scary stuff in there. So I really like it all. Do you look for the comedy in this horror genre? Yeah, for sure. Like there was a couple moments in it that were just like, <laughs> I don't know like how intentional they were, but just like reactions, like, like things that shouldn't be funny, like a kid getting his arm ripped off. Like it just, it shouldn't be funny, but the, like the expression on the kid's face or the reaction or just like little things like that, like little glimpses that you're just like, that's funny. And it's maybe cause it's so surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got to be honest with me here. Um, when you're watching horror movies, are you that one person in the theater who's constantly laughing throughout the movie? <laughs> I have gotten in trouble for that a few times in theaters, for sure. Because I feel like there's always that one person who, and I know, like, personally, it, my mom, when she said, and she, <laughs> she's not, see, she's not <laughs> watching the horror to find the comedy. Like, she's not watching it the same way you are out of pleasure. But right. for her, she's watching it. And when she gets so scared, she just starts yeah. laughing like hysterical. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, there's always that one person. But I think it's interesting because you're laughing for a slightly different reason right. than, than everyone else. 
as a kid, right. did that set you apart from everybody else? I don't know. I think that like, like growing up, I remember like people would have slumber parties and like, you'd want to get a scary movie like children of the corn. I remember being like a real like go-to for slumber parties when I was a kid. And I think that all my friends kind of were into it. Maybe I just like had some weird friends. I definitely wasn't a popular kid. And like, we'd do things like light as a feather, stiff as a board. And I think because I was kind of more theatrically minded um, that I was maybe kind of leading the charge a bit and like trying to scare my friends. Um, so maybe they weren't into it, but I thought they were. When, when did you originally start liking theater and start liking performing? I think that when I was really little, like when I was in elementary school, I remember we had like a school play and I like, I don't think, I think everybody was a part of it. And I had just like a one, you know, I was a part of this group of kids that like ate fudge or something. I don't even remember what the play was. And uh, I remembered liking that experience, but more than anything, I, I found myself performing a lot at school. I would get in trouble all the time for talking and like just kind of being like a ham. Um, but I, I, I wasn't like I was, I was like a fat kid. Like I, I didn't have a lot of friends, and I kind of was like the way that I can make myself a popular kid and get a lot of friends is by making people laugh. Like I kind of realized that early on. And so I kind of uh, became the funny kid. And so I would perform like every day when we'd go to like recess, I'd always have some kind of bit I was doing for the other kids. And, um, and I didn't really start performing like in a real way until I got into high school and I was part of the, the theater group and the drama club. And I, I wasn't really into it, but I was like pretty into it. I wasn't like one of those diehard kids cause I also played sports, but I was in like a couple of plays and, but then, but my family was not like an artistically minded family. They weren't like pushing me to be in theater by any means. Um, so I kind of fell out of it because I went to college and was like, I got to get a real job and like, you know, quit screwing around. And so I never thought that was going to be a path for me. Um, but that's when I, I always kind of loved it, but I was always like, Oh, this isn't something I can do for a living. So, well, there you go. You just told me your whole life. So now we can wrap up the show. Thank you so <laughs> much. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So when you were, when you were this kid and you, like you said, you wanted to perform these bits for your classmates, were you taking inspiration from things or were you coming up with your own material? Um, I think I would take inspiration for stuff, but like one of the big things that we would, so funny, it was like my first character I ever played was, uh, I would play this character and I guess it was like stuff that scared me. So I would be like, okay, this will scare other kids and it'll be funny. And I had this character that I called escaped convict. And it might've been from like watching raising Arizona or something. I don't know where I got it from. It could have been from the news or something, but the idea of someone escaping from a prison was terrifying to me because that's like bad people. But I turned this escaped convict into a character where I would like freak the kids out and like scream and like act insane. And so that was one of the very first things that I ever did. So I'm guessing it came from like news or something I heard my parents say or something. Yeah. And that's, that's funny that you say that you would like scream and freak people out. Cause it just goes with this theme of the weird type of horror -y stuff to make others laugh yeah and you know what i didn't realize the connection of all this until i started talking to you so we're really working some stuff out here well look a lot of people come on this show to really open up and find their inner unknown selves so i'm glad <laughs> that i can be here to help you unlock what's been hiding inside Great. all these years Great.
So, so tell me, you, you said you started getting involved in high school. What happened in college that, you know, changed your life course? Cause you said you wanted to get a real job. Obviously you ended up doing artistic things for a living. So what changed in college? So in college, I was studying biology first. I was going to be a biology major because I guess I wanted to work with animals. I don't really know. I thought it was what I was supposed to do. So I was in college studying biology, and then I quickly realized that I was not smart enough because there were so many kids that were so much smarter than me studying biology that I was just like, no way I could keep up. So I think it was like my sophomore year, I changed my major to psychology because I was like, you know, a softer, easier science. And so I really did well in psychology. And I think it's probably because I love weird things and uh, humans are weird and they do weird stuff. And so psychology was really fun for me, but I all the while was like missing something. Like I needed, I needed something. I was like, I needed a creative outlet. And a friend of mine uh, had gone to see an improv show at Whole World um, in Midtown. And he was like, have you ever seen improv before? I was like, no, what is it? And he's like, you got to go. So we went and saw a show. And that night I was like, oh my God, I got to do this. And I signed up for classes and um, I took classes at Whole World. And then I ended up taking class. Oh, I was, I was working at, as a cocktail waitress at, uh, while I was in college, finishing my degree, working as a cocktail waitress at Dave and Buster's, um, which is the worst place on earth to work. And uh, I met Tommy Futch there, who is the uh, the head of Laughing Matters, which is a, a improv troupe in town that does a lot of like corporate improv stuff. Now they used to have they used to do public more public stuff. So Tommy Futch was doing murder mysteries at Dave and Buster's, and when they weren't on stage, their green room was like the kitchen where we were back there, you know, getting orders and placing orders and stuff like that, and, or we'd take breaks back there and stuff. And so Tommy Futch started chatting me up and was like, you know, what do you do? And blah, blah, blah. I was like 19. And I told him that I was taking improv classes. And he's like, well, I happen to run an improv company. We're having auditions come audition. And so I went and auditioned uh, for Tommy. And there was like 75 people auditioning. And I'd taken like two improv classes. I didn't know shit. I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. And uh, then out of 75 people, two people made it into his... Uh, it's company, and it was myself and another actress in town named Katie Nealon, who is amazing, and she, she's like done so much stuff. She works at Agatha. She's been in tons of TVs and and, and uh, TV shows and movies. Um, yeah, and so that's how I started working there, and then that led to Dad's Garage, and and it just kept going from there. But all the while, I still finished college and got a degree in psychology and started working as a counselor after college. Uh, well, it's interesting of how you fell into improv because for me, it was kind of like. It was pretty similar where I had a friend say to me, hey, I have an extra ticket. It was actually to a dad's garage show when they were over at Seven Stages. And yeah. my friend was like, hey, come check out dad's garage with me. And I had heard of it. I wasn't really sure. I, had, I hadn't been to a show. And I went to it. And it was the exact same thing where I was like, oh, this is nice. pretty cool. This is pretty Do you remember awesome. what the show was? It was a it was a theater sports. It was a Saturday night. Oh, nice. Um, it was their 1030 show. And like, I loved it. And I remember. It it was right. It was in a September when this happened, and then I went back for my birthday because I loved it cool. so much. And my parents got me the VIP seats or the the first class seats. We were in the front row, and I got called up to do a scene. Um, and I uh, it was a scene with Tara or Tara. Um, yeah. What's her last name? I'm I'm forgetting. Tara Oaks. 
Tara Oaks. That's who it was. It was with Tara Oaks. And she called me up and she asked me, we had this conversation. She asked me how old I thought she was. And I gave a, a genuine answer of what I thought. And I said 50. And, <laughs> oh, no. And your reaction is pretty much the reaction of the entire audience was not the reaction of her. She, <laughs> she did not have that reaction. Um, but it was so much fun. So, so I signed up for classes immediately. And I did all four levels. And I loved it. Um, but it's similar. You know, we fell into yeah. it. Yeah. way. That's awesome. I think a lot of people probably have that story, you know, like you just see a show and then if you're the kind of person that it speaks to, you're like, I must do this and I must do it now. Right. Exactly. I just thought, I mean, okay, well, let me ask you, what drew you to it? What did, what did you love about it? I think it's because like, and this is what we say at dads all the time is like, we're the gateway drug to theater. And like most people think, especially young people, like theater's for old people. It's the Alliance. It's going to see, you know, Christmas Carol. It's like, you know, it's not something for young people. And then you see, like when I saw, when I finally went to dad's and saw a show there, I was like, this is the, and this was when they were new and young and super scrappy. Like it was a really young theater back then. Like maybe they'd been open for like two or three years. Like, I was like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. I'm, I'm in the room. I'm experiencing it with these people. So I felt like a part of the action as an audience member, which is what I think is interesting about improv to begin with. And I just, I was just like, I loved the immediacy of it. I loved like how new and interesting it felt to me. And I never was really like, I, I've always been a fan of comedy, but I've never been a big like fan of stand up. And it seemed like the other side of that to me, like everything about it spoke to me. I remember seeing a scene that was um, George Fawnen, who is one of the, um, the founders of dads and he's still around today. And he was in a scene where he was playing a Q-tip in a trash can. And the other person in the scene with him was a band aid that had been stuck to the bottom of the trash can for like 20 years. And they were just telling the story of their lives. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, it just blew my mind. Like, anything was possible because there's no constraints. Like, there's no costumes holding you back. There's no set holding you back. You can literally do anything. And I just thought that it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And the thing, the thing that I liked about it, I mean, I liked all the things that you talked about, is I liked the teamwork aspect behind it. Yeah, totally. That's so cool too. Like, and now I'm like, so uh, like I've grown so much uh, as a performer since those early days. And now I'm like, I can't do what I do without other people. Like it's so collaborative. Like it literally changed the course of my life and how I work, how my brain works, how I put information together, how I create is it is all because of doing improv and learning how to collaborate in that way. I I totally agree, and help and learning improv has definitely helped me, you know, just talk to people on a daily basis. Totally, where, where you you start talking to somebody, and it's always you know yes, and it's not a literal yes and, but it's all about continuing the conversation and not negating it and ending the conversation. Yeah, it's such a funny thing. Like people talk about it all the time. Like. Now, like once you're around improvisers, you don't want to be around other people because improvisers are so positive and so connected because we are taught how to listen and so engaged that it's just like improvisers are the best. Like when I was young and I first started, 
I was super outgoing always, but I'm still like an introvert and I need my own space and I like my own time. And, and one of the things that I really struggled with when I was younger was making eye contact with people. Like I couldn't do it. I couldn't look at people in the eye when I talked to them and people obviously found that very off putting. And one of the things I learned in improv was you have to make eye contact with your scene partners because you, that is the only thing you got up there. And so that was one of the first like huge life changing things that I was able to do. And it seems so simple, but it was huge at the time. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you learn all these rules in improv and then you you start applying them outside of the classroom and you're like, oh, snap, like this is like real life. You know, it's not just totally it's not just some gimmicky theater game that we're playing like this. You could apply anywhere. Yeah, totally. So you said earlier that you took classes through whole world, but and, and then you eventually ended up at dad's garage. Did you do improv anywhere else besides those two theaters? Um, no, like when I was at Whole World, I um, I never really performed there. I just kind of took classes there. And they had like this new group that they were starting. And then they like got rid of it. And I got kind of cheesed. And I was like, fine, screw it. I'll find somewhere else to go. And that's when I started with Laughing Matters. And then um, I still perform with Laughing Matters today. Not as much as I do with dads. But um, so dads and Laughing Matters are pretty much the two big ones. When, when I was a little bit younger... Um, uh, Second City was doing shows in Atlanta at the Alliance and they were kind of coming through and it was a really big deal for Atlanta improvisers because every year they'd come through and they'd cast the show half with Chicago improvisers and half with improvisers from Atlanta. And so the auditions were a big deal and every improviser from Atlanta came out for these auditions and they only took like two or three people each year. And I remember being in the auditions and there was like people that were currently in the level one class that I was teaching. And I was like, God damn it, you guys are just mucking it up. <laughs> um, and then the first year I auditioned, I didn't get in. And the second year I auditioned, I did get in. And so that kind of started my my little short stint that I did with, with Second City. And so I did improvise with them. I did the show in Atlanta. And then I got asked to work on, uh, they do cruise ship shows. And so I got to do a cruise ship show for a little while too. And so so yeah, that'd be the other place. I mean, I've performed on other stages. Like I've performed at UCB and I've performed at IO and, you know, being an improviser, especially one that travels a lot, I've performed on improv stages all over the world, literally, but never been like a part of any other companies. Okay. Now I, I got to ask you, cause I went, when Thomas Middleditch came to dad's that first time mm -hmm. I went, I saw his show. I don't know. Were you, were you there? I can't remember. Yeah. You, yeah. So you, you were there. He talked about being on a cruise ship and obviously doing improv on a cruise ship. But what was your experience doing improv? It was very, very similar to Thomas's. Like he, when he was telling the stories, I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Because it's such a weird world. I mean, it, it's like, it is like living. I, I'll say this. I didn't do a full contract. So most contracts, all contracts are four months long. And so you have to sign up for a four month contract. Um, and I was offered a four month contract and I couldn't do it because I just got an archer and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go, on a boat for four months and they're like, no, you're not, you're on a TV show. And I was like, what, how does this work? Um, so I ended up doing a one month contract because they needed somebody to fill in. And I was like, I can go for a month. Um, so I wasn't on the ship nearly as long as he was, but it is a weird world because like you're living on a floating mall and it is like a prison. Uh, the crew bar that he was talking about is horrifying. It's one of the most insane places on earth. There's people from all over the world. It's, very interesting. I mean, living on a ship alone is like, 
crazy. Like every ship has a morgue because people die at sea and you have to have a place to put them. Like there's a prison, I mean like a jail cell, like it's really, it's really an intense experience. I, I, anybody that's a performer or anybody that just is kind of like, you know, wants to like see the world and have, have a fun, weird career. Like I would totally recommend working on a cruise ship for a short period of time. Cause it's really insane. D- did you find when, when you were working on the cruise ship that in that time span, you became kind of like a mini celebrity for the ship? Yes. Yeah. Like Thomas talked about it in his show and what would happen is that, the uh, the the cruises are always a week long, at least on the ship that I was on. And so Sunday, all the passengers get on the ship. And so Sunday through Tuesday, you're just another passenger. I mean, you're you're just like hanging out on the ship, doing your thing. And then Wednesday, you have your big show, and you're underway. So there's nothing else to do. Everybody's on the ship. Everybody goes to the show. So then from Wednesday to the next Sunday, you're a celebrity on the ship because who else are they going to see? And they're like, we saw you in the thing. It, it is really crazy because people are like they'll corner you and it's like what else are they going to do you're all stuck on this ship together right so did they ever come up to you and and say something like hey you know do something funny for us or tell us a joke did that ever happen yes it happens all the time especially like when you're stuck in like an elevator with somebody because you know it's like dads from the midwest and you know like people just regular people and so of course that happens all the time so I got to ask, because I know for me, when I tell people, oh, I host a comedy podcast or, oh, I love comedy, almost, well, I would say probably 85% of the time, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, sweet, tell me a joke. So <laughs> for you, when someone says to you, oh, Amber, you're a comedian, tell me a joke. What's your go-to response? God, what do I usually say? I think it's usually something like, oh, well, you know, I don't really tell jokes or Oh, I'm an improviser, so it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, whatever I could do to weasel myself out of it. Because it's like, I don't have any jokes. And if I do have any jokes, they're like kid jokes. <laughs> I was at a friend of mine. I was at her house one time, and I told her dad that I loved comedy. And he said it to me. He said, tell me a joke. And I said, what do you think? I'm your dancing monkey? No. And he thought it was hysterical. He thought that was a <laughs> <the> joke. <laughs> That's great. So he like died. So really it was a win for me because he thinks I'm hysterical now. But <laughs> Great. I, I mean, man, people who say that to me, it's not like, you know, you go up to somebody and you say, hey, what do you do? And they're like, I'm a dentist. And you're like, sweet, like do a root canal. Like, that's not how right. it works. Exactly. But for whatever reason, with comedians, <laughs> they think it's okay to just say, do yep. it for me now. Do a trick. <laughs> totally. So. What what was your experience like? How was it different at each of the improv theaters? What what's the different environments like? Um, I think the big thing is that um, they all kind of have different styles. Like at Whole World, and this so keep in mind, I'm really old. So whole, when I was at Whole World, I'm not fifty though, <laughs> but I am Tara's age. So when you said that, it really made me laugh. Um, uh, when I was at Whole World, they uh, they have a very different style of the way that they do like their improv, at least at the time. Um, and so in the late 90s, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. My phone started making weird noises. And I was like, uh-oh. Um, so w- they would get like a lot of suggestions at the top of the scene. So they'd be like, okay, these two people are going to be in a scene together. Um, they are brother and sister. They'd also like give a lot of information. Like the brother and sister, they're having a fight. What is the fight about? Um, which is just like, it, it was very 
compared to the way dads does it, it seems very constraining, but that's just how they did it and how they taught what they do. And so that's, that's their style of short form. And then like at Laughing Matters, it's uh, very family friendly because they do family shows, they do corporate improv. So it's like not dirty. It's, it's very like bright and shiny, big laughs, like big characters over the top stuff. Um, but that's really great training because when you need to do a corporate show, you can hit the stage and you can make or need to do a kid's show or a show at a school or whatever. It's great training because then you, you can you know you can do that and you can be dirty when when you're doing a late show somewhere too. Um, and then dads, the thing about dads that's so cool, and not a lot of people realize this, at least audience members, is that we're a theater sports company. And so theater sports isn't just that show we do on Saturday night. It's like a whole, and you know this because you took the classes, it's like a whole way, it's a whole philosophy. There's books, there's a theater company that kind of started the whole thing, and there's Keith Johnstone. And so it's a way, uh, it's kind of a, it's like a brand of improv, the way theater sports is done. It's very narrative-based. It's, it's, um, it's short form, but also there's long form that our theater does too. And um, so that was really cool because if you meet any other theater sports trained improviser in the world, you guys could hit the stage together and you can do a show and you'll be on the same page. And that goes for most improv, no matter what kind of improv you do, but it's particularly uh, true when you, when it comes to doing theater sports. So yeah, I think, you know, everybody's kind of got their own vibe. And then in Chicago, like Chicago improvisers think that they invented improv and they're the only people in the world that do improv and they do it right. And they do it one very particular way. And there's not a lot of other ways that things get done. And so you know, there's the Herald and there's all the, the things that go with that. And there, and then there's UCB that com- plays a completely different type of improv that does, you know, like finding the game and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, every, every theater company is different, but I think my heart, and it, maybe it's cause I've been there the longest is the way, is the way the dads does it. So that, that's funny you say that. Cause my next question was actually going to be, what's your favorite way to do improv, but would you say it's the theater sports narrative type? Yeah, I really love narrative and I really love character. And I think that, like, I, I love playing characters and I didn't always. I was a I was a good narrative improviser before I was a good character improviser. Um, but now I love character because it, it's, um, it's just richer to me. But yeah, the way that Dads does it is is for sure my favorite. But, um, so theater sports, but also we do, we do a lot of long form at Dads too. And the way that we do it coming from a theater sports place is is the way I like to do long form too. Okay, and I have a question that it might it might take you a second to answer, but I think you'll you'll reach down and inside your inner unknown self and discover it. Okay. What is your favorite improv scene you've ever done? Oh boy. Oh, okay. Um this is the first thing that came to mind. Uh, we, I don't know if you've ever seen it cause we haven't done it in a while, but we do a show at dad's called Samurai Davis Jr. And Dim Sum's mega super happy fun time improv show. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Okay. So it's basically a, an improv show where two, uh, two teams compete and the audience votes, which team did a better job in that round of scenes and whoever loses gets punished and the punishments are horrifying. Like Things like you got to smash grapes with like your feet, like you're making wine, but then your partner has to drink your foot juice and like just really terrible stuff. 
Um, so what I found over the years that we did that show is when I was an improviser in that show, I did the best improv of my life because I was literally improvising for my life. So I didn't have to do some terribly disgusting thing. And there was a scene that, uh, oh, and at the beginning of each scene, um, the group is given like a random prop and they just have to incorporate it. They count the scene down and then you just go. So there was a particular scene in, uh, that show and I think I was on a team with Tara and we got a ball and so the lights come up and we're we're kind of playing with the ball we're obviously kids and then I I just kind of dropped the bomb to Tara that there's been a there was like a train wreck and there was a bunch of dead people and so so it was this really this really like sweet innocent kids playing scene that became this really dark like have you seen what the inside of a neck looks like? I think is like one of the questions I asked her. So it goes back to the horror thing. I was just like this weird little like macabre kid that was asking her buddy, like, you know, about seeing dead people. So that was one of my favorites. It was super fun and the audience loved it. So you didn't have to squish grapes and make Tara drink the grapes? I didn't have to that time, but I definitely had to in other shows. I think I got all the punishments at some point or another. That sounds, I don't, I don't know if I, if, because a part of me is like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And another part of me is like, I'll just be an audience member for that. <laughs> you know, the reason we haven't done it in a long time, I think, is because people don't want to do it anymore. Like, we were having a hard time finding improvisers that were like, no. Like, we, we couldn't cast the show because people were like, I'm not doing that show anymore. <laughs> well, if you ever do it again, I mean, you got to let me know because I, I, I have to see it. It's for sure fun. It's so fun as an like the audience loved it. We would sell out like almost every show because it's so fun. People love seeing people get tortured. Right, and I mean, obviously, like the the name of the show is it's like a Japanese game show essentially. Yeah, totally. Yeah, man. Speaking of a Japanese game show, this has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about, but it it goes into the weird horror category that you like. Mm Hmm. I saw this video online of this Japanese game show and these two this these girls were each on a side of a pipe like a clear pipe and there was a dead okay. cockroach in the middle and they both had to blow as hard <gasps> as they could to <laughs> to try to get the cockroach into the other girl's mouth it was weird <laughs> we did a, a punishment very similar to that but in the tube was a piece of like wet dog food <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure somebody that was producing the show saw that and was totally using that as inspiration. That is so crazy. But I think something that I'm finding really interesting is in the course of all these comedy things that we're talking about and comedy things that you find hilarious, they're, they fit the almost the same category. Like I know, I feel like I know your exact type of humor now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so... Now, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your voiceover acting, because obviously okay. I know that plays a big role in your career today. Um, mm -hmm. When did you first start doing voiceover? When did that begin? So I was um, doing stuff with dads. I was the education director for a few years. When I, when I quit my job as a counselor, my, when I quit my real job to become an actor full-time, um, I was working at dads as the education director and kind of gigging doing gigs to and teaching to like make ends meet. And uh, there was a guy that did like radio spots for a local radio station. 
And I think I did, because Lucky did radio spots for this guy too, and I think I did a few radio spots for that guy. And you'd come in and you'd do a few and they'd pay you like 150 bucks and you'd go home. And then Mike Schatz, who is um, an ensemble member at Dad's also, he is, um, he works at an ad agency as the creative director. Is that what they call him? I think that's what they call him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would need people to record radio spots. Like he did stuff for Moe's and like, um, the Braves and all different, like the Hawks, all different kinds of companies over the years. And he would need people to record, um, voice commercials. And so I would go in, he could call me and I'd show up 10 minutes later. And so I'd go in and record little things for Mike. So that was the kind of the first, um, intro I got into like being in a studio and recording stuff and getting notes and re-recording. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. So when you do these first recordings, did you talk like how you're talking now, like on a phone and just casual, or did you slightly change your voice and try to sound like a different person? I think it depended. Like uh, most of the time it was like an everyman kind of thing that they were looking for, for the radio spots. Like I'd be playing like a mom or a whatever, and, or like just an announcer, but like not an announcery announcer, like just a person talking. And so I wasn't really um, changing my voice too much. And I think that because like it was a performance and I came from stage performing, I think that I would put on, you know, just a little bit because it's a performance and not just you talking. Um, But I don't think I did a lot of like voices, you know, like character voices. Okay. Did you ever have people come up to you after they published the the voiceover and they were like, hey, I heard you. I heard you on the radio. And no. <laughs> I think because a lot of, like when I started doing the radio stuff, a lot of it would get like, because it was a big, like there was a radio station in Atlanta, but it was like owned by a giant radio conglomerate that had stations all over the country. So I think like the stuff I was doing would end up like in Cincinnati or um, Las Vegas or whatever. And so no, nobody ever heard heard my heard my stuff. I would. I did you ever hear your own stuff? No, and I always wanted to because I remember hearing like, um, you know, a lot of p- comedy people in Atlanta end up doing Georgia Lottery commercials at some point in their career, and I would see Georgia Lottery commercials with my friends, and I would also hear them on the radio and recognize people's voices, but mm-hmm. I never heard my own stuff. I think that's the that must be the coolest experience. Like if you are a star in a like national commercial or a national radio voiceover commercial and you see yourself or hear yourself, like that must be pretty Yeah. Yeah, or you're like at a bar having a drink and then like your commercials like on the TV at the bar and you're like, Check it out, guys, that's me. <laughs> you're like, Hey guys, look, I'm the AT and T guy. Everyone hey, hey, turn it up, turn it up. You know, you get all excited. <laughs> totally. So when when did you start doing actual character work for TV shows or maybe for videos? When did that start? Um, well, I was working at Dad same around the same time. I guess I'd probably done you know a little bit of radio and, and uh, commercial stuff. And um, Christian Danley, who is also an improviser at Dad's Garage, he um, was working for a company as an animator because he had like finished art school and he got this really sweet job and he was working with the guys that made C-Lab that ended up eventually making uh, Frisky Dingo. And so, and then eventually uh, Archer. Uh, and so they were just a group of like six dudes in a like dirty house in East Atlanta making like shitty low budget cartoons. And because uh, Christian worked with them, they knew about dads and they would come see shows. And 
they, um, and I knew all the people that worked on, on C-Lab and was like friends with MC Chris, who was on C-Lab and, uh, we would all hang out and we were all, you know, young people that hung out at dad's and like did comedy. And so, um, they, they were aware of all of us and they were starting to make Frisky Dingo cause C-Lab was over and they needed somebody for the character of, um, it was actually going to be a, more of like a family show, which is very strange if you've ever seen Frisky Dingo. Um, and they were looking for like a like a, a teenage girl. And so I auditioned for it and I was completely wrong for it because I've sounded like a woman in her 40s since I was like 15. And uh, so they ended up going with Linnea, who is another improviser from Dad. She's now living in Chicago. And... Uh, then the role completely changed, the show completely changed, and I ended up getting the role of Val. So that's kind of how it all started. That's how I started working with those guys in the first place. So Val was your first character, essentially. Yeah, Val was my first character on an animated show. And then because it was low budget and because, you know, they made this scrappy little show and they completely, like, paid me under the table and I would just show up. They could call me and I'd show up. They would usually have me record um, other characters too. So um, I did like <laughs> a character just called Hooker. I don't even think she had a name. Um, that was more of like a, she had like a New York accent. And then I played a character that was like literally like a crack whore um, and maybe a few others. So I would do a few character voices on that show too. So with this character of Val, when you go into audition or when they give you the character description, do you change your voice to fit the character or do they give you a list of characteristics and you kind of tweak it until they're satisfied? How do you get that final product? Well, it's different for every show, but in that case, um, I just, because I was so new to it, I just use my own voice for Val. Cause they're like, great. We want Val to sound like you. So just try it. And I think that maybe I recorded a couple lines and they would give me some notes, but Val sounded just like my regular voice. So I wasn't trying to go for anything else, but like with other characters, I think like when I did the hooker voice, I just wanted to sound different than Val. So it didn't, wasn't obvious that it was the same actor. So I just like did an accent. They're like, yeah, great. That, that works. <laughs> and so some, sometimes like when I audition for shows, like I'll get very specific things that they want, but then sometimes you're just, it's kind of like up to you to like, just do something and see if that's along the lines of what they're looking for. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. And did, so did Frisky Dingo lead into Archer or were there multiple steps before you eventually landed in Archer? Uh, no, it actually led right into it. And it's such a crazy story because it's like so ridiculous that it happened the way that it did is that uh, Frisky Dingo got canceled after two seasons and they were making the DVD for um, season two and they were doing some like DVD extra stuff and they had me come in and record it. And this was after we, you know, finished the season. We knew the show had been canceled. And so they were going to give me like, I don't know, 50 bucks to come in and record something. And I was like, yeah, I'm a gigging actor. I need that 50 bucks. And while I was there, they're like, Hey, after I record my stuff, they're like, come, come look at something. Why don't you see something? I was like, okay. And it was a monitor and it had Pam's head on it. It was the first time I'd ever seen Pam's head. And they're like, um, we want you to play this character. Um, we think that you'd be great for it. And so what they had done is they'd taken one of Val's lines from Frisky Dingo and animated Pam's head to say those lines just to kind of see what my voice would sound like coming out of Pam's head. And they decided that they wanted me. And so I didn't even audition for it. 
there was already like huge celebrities like Jessica Walter and Aisha Tyler and Chris Parnell cast on this show. And I thought it was just another crazy show like the one that we'd just done, like some little small project. I had no idea. Like I didn't even know what FX was back then. I didn't know it was going to be such a big deal. I didn't know like there was all these celebrities attached to it. And they just asked me to do it. And I was like, yeah. And that's how it all started, which is crazy. People are like, God damn it. <laughs> so talk about your first your first time recording for Archer. Well, actually, I should ask this because I have no idea how voice recording goes. So what is the process of actually getting your voice recorded? Okay. Um, so I'll tell you about the first time and then I'll tell you about the process. Yeah. So yeah. the one thing that happened the first time is I went in and I recorded and we were just recording the pilot. And so there had been a previous pilot episode um, that the network didn't approve. So they kind of were like going back and reconfiguring some stuff. And I think that maybe, I don't remember if I came in on the first one or the second one, because uh, maybe they just re-recorded some of the characters. Um, but so we recorded the pilot and I still wasn't sure that I had the job because everything has to be um, approved by the network. So the network had to approve my voice for that character, which is like, you talk to any actor and that's like, you could go through this whole process of auditioning, getting a second audition, booking the job. And then the network being like, we don't want this actor. We want somebody else or we want somebody that's more like high profile. And so I could have very easily been canned early on. Um, but the network liked me and I got the job, which was insane. The fact that it happened that way, I think they were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We don't care. This show's going to not go anywhere anyway. Um, so that was the very first time. And so then I think it was like quite some time in between recording the pilot and then recording the next episode because we had to get approval. Um, but so when you go in, generally for us, it's different when you do, um, it's, every show's different. A lot of animated shows do it this way, but movies do it differently. So when we record, we usually get the script sent to us and we have like a few days to read it. And then I show up at the studio and it's the same studio that they usually book. It's not at where they make the cartoon. Some places have like production company would have a studio but Floyd County doesn't. They prefer to not have it on site. So I go to a studio and I record my lines and I read them off the page. I don't have to memorize them or anything. Um, and I've thought about kind of how I wanted to deliver it, especially now playing the character for so long and I know everybody's voice so well that I can kind of imagine how it's going to be done. Um, but I read each line maybe three times and kind of change it up. And they're like, yeah, yeah, do it like that again. And so I usually do each line, you know, like a handful of times and then I'm done and it takes like 30 minutes and then I'm done. And then it's probably two more weeks before I record another episode. Wow. Yeah. Well, so I don't work a lot. <laughs> do you find it like for me, it's hard to imagine reading the lines in a conversation, but not hearing the lines back or does somebody feed the lines to you? Yeah, good question. So I know that like when I first started, I never read with anybody else. I would just read the lines and then kind of just, you know, like when I when I got the script, I'd kind of read it and imagine it. Um, and that's how I've always done it. Jessica, like she always has a reader. So when they record Jessica, she always has somebody reading with her. So she has somebody to react to. And that's always the way she's done it. Um, so I guess it just kind of depends on what most people are comfortable with. Like if there's something in the dialogue that's really, um, really reactionary, then I, I usually I'm usually don't get it. And so they have to read me in. Or if there's like a snappy exchange, then I'll usually record it with the director and he'll just read the other lines for me um, and we'll record it that way. 
So do you have any input on how they write your character? Or can you give suggestions of things you might want or story ideas? Or really, it's your hands off and you're just the voice? It's pretty much hands off. I'm pretty much just the voice. Like Adam is a crazy genius. And for one thing, like most comedy shows have a whole team of writers that write these shows, uh, especially that have gone on for multiple seasons. Um, but Adam is the creator and the sole writer of Archer, which is insane. Like it's an insane amount of work that he does, but he's also kind of like a crazy genius and he has it all in his head. And so there's really not a lot of need for input because he's made this incredible character. But what I do think has happened over the years is like, as Adam has gotten to know all of the actors better, the actors, um, his relationship with the actors has started to inform the characters a bit more. Like he knows what Lucky's capable of. He knows um, some things that, that Judy says in real life. So he kind of incorporates that into stuff. And so I think that once he kind of realized what people are capable of and kind of got to know their personalities a little bit better, the characters blossomed more, but it's still all coming from Adam. So, when, what was the moment, you know, when you when you first rec- started recording the show, you have no idea how big it's going to get. You're just recording for a pilot of a new show. When was the moment where you and maybe the cast as well were like, oh, yeah, we've got something special here? Yeah, I think it was. So I had recorded all of season one before I ever met any of the other cast because everybody lives in different places and we all record separately. So everybody's in LA and New York and then me and Lucky are in Atlanta. And so I, we'd recorded all season one and I was like, I still didn't even realize like it was a thing. And then season one aired and then people were kind of into it, but it took a little while. And then I think it was like halfway through season two that we were like, Oh shit, this is going to be a hit. And I think it was, the year of season two, I went to Comic-Con San Diego for the first time and was part of a panel. And it was kind of like my first experience with any like Hollywood stuff. It was my first time meeting the whole cast. And it was insane. It was then that I was like, oh, shit, like I'm on this ride and it's crazy. I will say that in Googling you, I did find a picture of you getting interviewed at Comic-Con. And I was insanely jealous because I've always wanted to go to Comic-Con. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but what, what was, I can't even imagine what was that like sitting there up on a panel knowing that, you know, the work you're putting out, people are investing in and they love it so much. What is that like? What's that feeling like? It was, it was crazy. Like in the early days, I remember one of the things I said was I was like, I just want to be on a panel at Dragon Con in Atlanta. And then like that happened. And then it, the next thing happened and then bigger, 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 bigger. So it was like, I had, I did not have big dreams. Like I just wanted to be on a panel at Dragon Con. So to be on a panel at Comic-Con and be flown to San Diego and, you know, whenever Archer flies me places, like it's always first class and they put us up in really nice hotels. And it's like, it's crazy. Like doing red carpets and all that stuff is just like bonkers. It's a bananas world. It's completely opposite of the life that I live in Atlanta and like doing theater at dad's garage, but it's so fun. Um, and the thing that I think has been the most insane thing, and it happened later on, it, it, it kind of started happening like season four and up till now, like people being so obsessed with Pam, like people with Pam tattoos and people cosplaying as Pam and people with like kids that they named Archer and like people just really being like super duper into it because it's been around so long, you know, it's like really like a part of of like TV culture, which is crazy to me. 
I, I just think that's super cool, you know, especially like you were saying, where people are getting, you know, the character tattooed on them and naming their kid <laughs> after the show. That type of impact is so hard to get. But when you get it, it's so rich and it's so exciting that I, I'm, I'm very happy for you that you get to experience that because that really is really awesome. Yeah, thank you. I see. I, it's really cool. And I still think that I one day will fully under understand it and appreciate it. Like I'm still kind of in shock about the whole thing and it's been nine years, but like, like lucky always says lucky and I have, we have very similar stories because we both came from dads um, and are both doing Archer, but we have very different takes and outlooks on the world. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I'm still an actor that's gigging all the time and auditioning and, you know, kind of clawing my way up the ladder, like every actor and lucky's like, you know what? I made my mark on television, dude. I'm good. And it's like, oh yes, you're right. I mean, you totally have. Like, it's such a such a nice way to look at it. But I'm I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> so where where do you see the show headed? In what direction do you see it headed? It's a very open ended question, so you can answer that however you want. Yeah, I think you know the last. I think that Adam, because he's the only writer and he's uh, kind of like the engine behind everything, he he has to stay excited. Uh, and so that's one of the jobs that I think that a lot of the producers at Archer and Floyd County try to do is keep him excited and the, the network, too, because they want him to keep making the show that's a hit. And I think, you know, sometimes he gets a little bored. And I think the first time was when he made Archer Vice, which was season five. And it was like shaking it up and we're in a different world and we're in a different time. And the audience was like, what is this? What are you guys doing? Why are you messing with my show? And I think half the, the audience like really loved it and half the audience like really didn't love it. And so I think that that was the first glimpse into it. And then we went back in season six, back to normal. And then season seven and eight have been total shakeups again. And I think that the future of, because, you know, we moved to FXX. And so there's a little bit, the stakes are a little bit lower there. That's like where their comedies are. Um, it, we can kind of get away with like doing crazier stuff. And I think that Adam's plan is to every season now kind of just do something different. Like this season that we're making now, because we did Dreamland, which a lot of people too were like, I don't know about this. Because it wasn't like a laugh out loud show like it had been in the past. It was more dramatic and like it was a real film noir like from beginning to end um but this season um that we're recording now is danger island and it's so <laughs> stupid like in a great way like it's really back to like the ridiculous comedy and antics of these characters and it's super duper fun and it's set in like the 1930s like in the pacific um so i think it's just going to keep bopping around i don't know how long we're going to go i mean i know that um most times, most shows uh, get a buy for the season after their show. They're like, okay, we well, guys get one more season. And then every season they find out that they get one more season. So that's kind of like, you know, the game you're always playing on, on television. But we were lucky enough that they bought three seasons uh, this last time. So they bought season seven, eight, uh, no, eight, nine, and ten. So we knew early on that we were going to have until season ten. So uh, right now we're making nine and the next year we'll make 10. And then after that, we'll have to wait and see if they want to buy more episodes or if Adam wants to make more episodes. So I hope to God that he does, because I'll do this show for the rest of my life. But you just never know. That's awesome. Well, congratulations again on getting this really role of a lifetime. I'm so happy that you love it so much because I can hear, you know, just uh, obviously we're not in person. We're over the phone right now, but I can just hear your excitement about it. So that's super awesome. Yeah, thank you. 
So I have to ask you though, what is, where do you see yourself going? What is your goal? What are your goals for the future? Good question. Um, I've had a lot of time to think about this. <laughs> um, and I really want, you know, I've done a lot of theater and I love doing theater and I'll always do theater. And I've had some success doing voice work and I love it so much. But my real, my real want for my next step is to do more on camera work. And I've been kind of developing that side of things. And I want my own television show. I want to be the star of my own TV show. Um, that's a big thing to want. And of course, lots of people want that. Um, but that's kind of my path. That's what I'm going to work my hardest to, to try to make happen. And we'll see what happens. Well, you know what, Amber? I promise you right now, if you ever get, well, I'm not going to say if, when you get your own TV show, I promise I will not only watch it, but also promote it here on my podcast. I'll do both. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thank you. So the final question for you is a question that I ask all of my guests. Um, and it's a, well, I, I say it's an easy one, but it, it takes some thinking. Um, if you were to give one piece of advice to either your younger self or basically somebody who wants to grow up and be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give them? I think the biggest piece of advice is um, don't be a dick. <laughs> I think that the I think like being good to work with, I think that being as part of being an improviser, I think being a good collaborator, I think being down for stuff and game for things and willing to do if you can uh work for free when it's an important cause or you need to learn something from that experience, you know, like don't don't ever think you're done learning or giving or, you know, basically what my mom would say, don't be too big for your britches. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the advice I'd give. Don't be too big for your britches and the <laughs> word of you. Don't be a dick. I could, that is beautiful. <laughs> that is, that is beautiful. Well, Amber, thank you so much again for being on my show. I really appreciate it. Um, if people want to find you performing or keep up with what you're doing, where can they find you either online or maybe, um, performing wise? They can always, almost always, every week that I'm in town, I'm at Dad's Garage. Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Amber C. Nash and also on Instagram at Amber C. Nash. And also um, we've got our podcast online that's always there. It's 10 episodes. Each are like five, uh, not podcast, sorry, or um, uh, what do you call it when it's like a show online? Oh, like, <laughs> what are they called? Web like, series. <laughs> well, well, there you go. <laughs> web series. Um, they can see our web series. Uh, it's at heartofamerica.com, and it's H-A-R-T of America.com. And it's got a bunch of dads people in it, and it's super fun, and it's 10 episodes, and they're each five minutes long. So that's another place they can see stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. I appreciate it. I love talking with, with you. This was a blast. Um, yeah, I got to say, you're a great interviewer. You do a really good job, and there's a lot of bad ones out there, so you are killing it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And once again, I appreciate you for being on the show. Thank you. And now for anyone who's listening, please remember to share our show and also like us on Facebook, and you can find us on iTunes, and you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight. Com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.